On March 30, 1907, a woman arrives at the Graylingwell Asylum in the south of England. A large manor house with a clock tower and ivy on the walls. She is 71 years old, 5 foot 3, 168 pounds. Wearing a black dress with a white lace collar, her long hair pulled back in a bun. She has no teeth, only dentures, and very little hearing. The doctors describe her as angry, senile, confused, weak-minded, unable to sustain a rational conversation, and, quote, without memory. What is she doing here? She doesn't know. How much does she remember of her life? It's hard to say. Her name is recorded by the National Lunacy Commission as Sarah Hughes. No one seems to know that she was once someone else. Someone famous and beautiful, and famously beautiful. One of the most desired women in the world, even if few people knew her name. Fanny Cornforth. Before, one day, she vanished. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the true story of life as a muse, as a woman in a world changing fast, if not fast enough. How does one inspire some of the most memorable artworks in the world, only to be forgotten? I'm Tim Gehring. Let's go back to the 1830s, to a village two hours south of London, in the countryside of West Sussex, where Sarah Cox is born. Born to a mother who, on her wedding day, could only sign the church register with an X. Sarah grows up just outside the village, in a house with a thatched roof, on a street called Mouse Lane. An idyllic life among the fields and animals, bucolic, until her family suddenly starts dying. Four children die in infancy, and then her mother dies shortly after childbirth. Eventually, tuberculosis takes her father, too, and her last remaining sibling, until there is only Sarah, a teenager now, somehow still warm-hearted and full of life. When she's in her early 20s, Fanny is invited by an aunt to London, and they go to the Royal Surrey Pleasure Gardens to see the celebrations for Florence Nightingale, the nurse and national hero, right, returning from the Crimean War. Thousands of soldiers and nurses are relaxing on the lawns. There's food and music, and when it's dark, there's fireworks. Sarah Cox, around this time, 
somehow meets the artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti. One story is that he's walking in the Strand, a popular entertainment district, and Sarah is standing there, cracking nuts between her teeth. When Rossetti notices her, she throws some nuts at him. But Sarah would always say it happened here, in the Pleasure Gardens, when she and her aunt were eating in a grove of trees. Rossetti and his young artist friends approach, and Rossetti somehow knocks the pins out of Sarah's hair, so that it tumbles down, long and golden. And then he asks if she would come to his studio the next day. Sure enough, all alone, she does. This is the Victorian era, right? The age of empire and sobriety and propriety. When people have supposedly become so prudish, they even cover up the legs of pianos. Wow. If anyone's actually covering the legs of furniture, it's probably to preserve them, not because they're turned on, right? Also, for men at least, not much has really changed. It never does, right? Even in the Victorian era, men can largely do what they want, with pianos or women. Women, though, have to play by the rules. And the rules are that women will be chaste and demure. Their hair pinned up, their skirts pulled down to the floor. Chaperones will make sure of it. Quote, the best mothers, wives, and managers of households know little or nothing of sexual indulgence, writes one influential English doctor. Love of home, children, and domestic duties are the only passions they feel. Sexual desire in women, and other writes, scarcely exists in a definite and conscious form. And yet, there has never been so much prostitution in London. London is booming, right? The largest city in the world, in the most powerful country in the world. And many of the newcomers are young women coming in from the country. In fact, there's about 4% more women than men in London in the Victorian era. A surplus population, as some put it. Barely educated, little money to speak of. Women who find it hard to make ends meet without a man, one way or another. Women like Sarah Cox. And so when a man approaches in a pleasure garden and knocks the pins from your hair, as Rossetti was known to do on more than one occasion, you have to decide, will you be coy and cold or willing and warm? When Sarah shows up at Rossetti's studio that day, She says, he put my head against the wall and drew it. A picture he calls found of a young woman from the country being pulled from the dirty city by a farmer, her head turned away in shame. Rossetti sketches Sarah as the fallen woman, right? And he begins painting the scene. The brick wall she's slumped against, the man tugging at her wrist. And then he stops before it's finished. And he never makes another moralizing picture again. He needs a model with 
some sense of shame, perhaps, or who at least can fake it to make the moral work. Instead, here's Sarah, revealing no shame at all. Sarah begins calling herself Fanny, the name of a younger sister who died. And soon Fanny is posing for other artists too. Sometimes again as a repentant prostitute, shamed into drowning herself or looking out a window at her fate in the streets. One of the artists is a neighbor of Rossetti, George Boyce. He takes Fanny to dinner, gives her money, and an oil sketch and a silver thimble. And soon she moves to be closer to him. Rossetti watches all this with amusement and affection. He draws the two of them together, Fanny leaning over George's shoulder as he paints. And then, in 1859, Rossetti paints his own portrait of Fanny, called Boca Bacciata, the kissed mouth. He shows Fanny alone against a backdrop of golden flowers, her copper hair filling the frame, tumbling to the sides and down her back. Her mouth is bright pink, and there's a plucked bloom in her hand, a picked apple on the table in front of her. On the back of the painting, Rossetti writes in Italian, Bocca bacciati non perdi ventura, anzi rinnova come fa la luna. The mouth that has been kissed does not lose its good fortune. It renews itself just as the moon does. It's an old Italian proverb, probably discovered by Rossetti in a story by the Renaissance writer Boccaccio, a story about a princess who has sex about 10,000 times, supposedly, with eight lovers in four years. And yet, she still presents herself to a king as his virgin bride. Rossetti likes this story. Better to be kissed and fresh, he suggests, than unkissed and stale. And Fanny's other lover, George Boyce, seems to agree. He not only buys the painting, he commissioned it. The kissed mouth is quite the change for Rossetti, for art in general, really. It's his first picture of a woman alone. Mostly, he has been painting medieval scenes with Christian themes, like his 1849 painting of the Virgin Mary as a young girl, with a stack of books labeled Prudence and Temperance and Faithfulness. Rossetti is, after all, one of the founders of the Pre-Raphaelite movement, that small secret society with the secret aim of making unpopular art, right? swearing off the muddy sensualism of current painting with all its fleshy cherubs and treacly romanticism in favor of bright, detailed pictures of virtue and chivalry. From the Bible or the tales of King Arthur, Jesus or Sir Galahad, it makes no difference to Rossetti, at least. As his patron John Ruskin puts it, to Rossetti, the Old and New Testaments were only the greatest poems he knew and he painted scenes from them with no more actual belief in their relation to the present life and the business of men than he gave also to the Morte Arthur. They are 
fairy tales, as far as Rossetti is concerned, but useful fairy tales. A more poetic way of thinking about life than just pretty pictures. But then, suddenly, here's this new kind of poetry, sashaying into his life. Brash and bold. A woman who seems to care little for prudence and temperance and faithfulness. Fanny is good to Rossetti. She allows him to be himself, to let his own hair down. Jesus and Sir Galahad be damned. Even if it upsets his patrons like Ruskin, a conservative Christian. It's not like his life has been imitating his art. Like Fanny, he too has other lovers. In fact, by the time he paints The Kissed Mouth, he's been engaged to one for eight years. Lizzie Siddle had been working in a hat shop when another painter, Walter Deverell, saw her there, tall and thin, with long red hair. He asked her to model for him. And when he couldn't quite get the red of her hair right, he called in Rossetti. Deverell had described Siddle as a, quote, stupendously beautiful creature, magnificently tall, with a lovely figure, and a face of the most delicate and finished modeling. And now Rossetti sees what he's talking about, and falls, as he puts it, deeply and profusely in love. They become engaged in 1851, when she's 19 and he's 20 and she moves into his studio. And after a while, after she spends hours sitting in a cold bathtub, posing for another pre-Raphaelite artist for his painting of Ophelia, lying dead beneath a forest stream, Rossetti asks her to model only for him. And yet, he can't quite bring himself to marry her. They're still together when Fanny comes into the picture, literally, in 1856. But within a year, when it's clear that Fanny isn't going anywhere, Siddle leaves for the countryside. Rossetti has just finished The Kissed Mouth in the fall of 1859, when he hears that Siddle is sick. She's often been sick, even more so after posing in that cold bath. And she's addicted to laudanum, a kind of painkiller, opium laced with morphine and codeine. But now... She says she's dying. Rossetti goes to her bedside, and, like a scene from one of his medieval paintings, he promises to marry her if, by some miracle, she recovers. Of course, she does. Now, wouldn't you know it, Fanny suddenly says she's sick too. But Rossetti doesn't rush to her bedside, if she's even in bed back in London. He marries Siddle. So, soon after Rossetti returns with his bride, after a honeymoon in Paris, Fanny marries too. Not Boyce or some other artist she's been with, but a guy named Timothy Hughes, a young mechanic from Liverpool. They don't seem to have much in common, though they're both of humble background. They live in a boarding house with their Irish maid, and he, by all accounts, drinks too much. Fanny doesn't even take his name, not professionally anyway. 
but she does take the last name of his stepfather, Cornforth. So she's Fanny Cornforth from now on. Artists look at her as a woman who refuses to take only what she's given, who takes what she isn't given, in fact. And they can't resist putting her in their stories. Stories invented by men, for men. Like the Lady of the Lake, as Edward Byrne Jones paints it. Fanny is the sorceress who traps Merlin by using his own magic against him. Or the picture now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art called I Know a Maiden Fair to See. Take care. A story drawn from a German ballad translated by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Quote, I know a maiden fair to see. Take care. She can both false and friendly be. Beware, beware. Trust her not. She's fooling thee. As if to say, women can't be trusted any more than they can be resisted. Rossetti returns to Fanny in 1861, about a year into his marriage. He paints her that year as Mary Magdalene, the prostitute whom Jesus loved, right? And he paints her as Fair Rosamund, the legendary mistress of the medieval king, Henry II. Do you know this story? The king keeps Rosamund in a secret house at the heart of a maze, in the royal park, where only he can find her, following a silken red cord. Rossetti paints Fanny leaning out a window, the red cord dangling down to the maze. Of course, in the story, Henry's wife, the queen, discovers the cord and traces it back to Rosamond and offers her a choice, dagger or poison. And Rosamond chooses the poison. One night in February 1862, Rossetti goes to a men's club. Siddle is home, pregnant for the second time after a recent stillbirth. And she writes a note. My life is so miserable. I wish for no more of it. And she pins the note to her nightgown. And then, with an overdose of laudanum, she kills herself. Now, the note is apparently burned before it can be seen by more than a few people. And there's no reason to believe Rossetti wasn't where he says he was, at the club. And there's no reason to believe Fanny wasn't at home with her husband. But rumors spread. They say Rossetti had gone to see Fanny that night. That he was in her arms when Siddle died. It doesn't help that Fanny is around more than ever after Siddle is dead and buried. Rossetti sets Fanny up in a house close to the studio an easy walk away. As her biographer, Kirsty Stone Walker, puts it, Fanny is about life, not death. And Rossetti wants to feel alive again. In his paintings now, gone is any trace of medievalism, of purity and chastity and the wan, thin beauty of Siddle. Instead, it's Fanny. Quote, the people who you associate with ruining you, John Ruskin tells him. But Rossetti is fine. He's good, actually. He goes to Paris with Fanny. He puts her in one of his best paintings, 
1865 called The Blue Bower. Her gown loose, her hair spilling over her shoulders with a kind of abandon, her eyes looking straight out at the viewer, her hands resting on a koto, a Japanese zither, like a courtesan or an entertainer, a mistress. If Rossetti feels any guilt over Lizzie Siddle, he isn't showing it. All of his conflicted feelings seem to have been buried with her, along with a book of poems he'd written and closed up in her coffin. Until, around the time he paints the blue bower, they begin to creep out. Rossetti has been going to seances for years. Lots of Victorians are, including Victoria herself, who aches for her Albert. She even awards a medal to a medium, Georgina Eagle, for, quote, meritorious and extraordinary clairvoyance. But now Rossetti has a mission. And Fanny, as always, is there to help. She becomes a medium, so she can be useful to Rossetti and his brother William and anyone else who wants to talk to the dead. And one night in February 1866... As Kirsty Stoner Walker tells the story, Rossetti is working on a watercolor of Hamlet and Ophelia, while his brother and Fanny are opening a channel to the great beyond. And suddenly, supposedly, she appears, a spirit they all believe to be Lizzie Siddle. I am always around the house, Siddle assures Rossetti. Two years later, when Fanny channels Siddle again, Rossetti asks her, Are you happy now? Yes. Happier than on earth? Yes. If I were to join you, should I be happy? Yes. Should I see you at once? No. Quite soon? No. Perhaps Fanny thinks it's enough that Rossetti should be freed of guilt. He doesn't need, like Romeo, to join his Juliet in death. The ghost of Siddle seems to set Rossetti free. Soon he's bringing other models into the household again, and his bed, including the wife of an old friend, William Morris. Jane had always been the one he wanted, but couldn't have. Often ill, brooding, aloof, and of course, married. The ideal woman, apparently. As for Fanny... Rossetti decides to put her out to pasture, as it were. I will take care of you, he assures her, as long as there was a breath in my body or a penny in my purse. She will get half his estate, he decides, when he dies. And then she'll be sent to America. Utah, perhaps, among the Mormons. He tells his brother to arrange for Fanny's, quote, exile, He's not dead yet. Even though his sight is failing and his waist is widening, Rossetti is still feeling his oats. He needs money, though, to fund all the philandering, because his patrons like Ruskin have walked away in disgust. So, he arranges for the poems he'd written and buried with Siddle to be dug up, pulled out of the coffin, and sold. And someone does, pulling out the damp, worm-eaten pages and two weeks later, Rossetti sells them. And even though they're terrible, really, 
poems make enough money for Rossetti to run off with Jane Morris to the country house jointly owns with her husband, William. As the weeks drag on, Fanny writes to ask if she can visit him at the country house. And he replies, No. The thing is quite impossible. When she says she's sick again, he tells her to take a vacation, get out to the country, just not this country. Rossetti has begun to call Fanny his elephant, a cruel term of endearment as she's put on weight, the elephant to his rhinoceros. And he half-jokingly suggests she's using her trunk to take things from him, money, art, and stash them in her, quote, elephant hole. Now he admonishes her, don't be a rogue elephant. Take the best step in life that you can and forget about me. Jane Morris eventually tires of Rossetti and returns to her husband and two kids. Now, there's no one left to him but Fanny. Wish I had a good elephant to talk to, he writes her, after Jane has left. But Fanny has already moved on. She's 42 now, and there never was much in the so-called elephant hole, of course. So she finds a man with a little money named John Bernard Schott, She leaves her keys to Rossetti's house on a table. Quote, It will not do to desert me and leave me in utter solitude, he writes her. But Fanny Mary shot anyway in 1879. And even then, Rossetti writes her, Good elephant, do come down. Old rhinoceros is unhappy. Eventually, she does. Her husband, too. Like servants, almost. Helping clean the house helping themselves now and then to artworks. Everyone seems to get what they want. When Rossetti is starting to fail, for real, he takes Fanny and his new secretary, a young man, to the Lake District in the far north of England. And he tells his secretary to draw up a new will, leave everything to Fanny. But the secretary refuses. When Rossetti is in his final months, and his family takes him to the coast and places him on his deathbed. The secretary refuses to tell Fanny where they are. Has there been any word from Fanny? Rossetti asks him. Nothing at all, he says. Oh, Rossetti says, my poor mistress. Fanny reads of his death in the newspaper, and by the time she learns where he is, it's too late. The funeral takes place early this afternoon, his brother writes her. There's nothing further to be done. Fanny sells a few of the pictures she has from Rossetti at an exhibition she holds, and to an American collector who comes to visit her. And then, around 1905, she disappears. Letters from the collector go unanswered, When he tries to find her, he learns only that her sister-in-law has taken her, someplace. Perhaps on the coast, to live out their lives together. But no one really knows. For more than a century, Fanny is lost. And then, little by little, she's forgotten, too. Rossetti had painted over her face in several pictures. As she got older and 
new women came into his life. Eventually, she's often misidentified, even in the picture she is in. The more famous the art becomes, the less remembered she is. Until a few years ago, her biographer, Kirsty Stoner Walker, learns where she ended up. That her sister-in-law had taken her not to the coast to live with her, but to a workhouse. Checked in with her first husband's name, Sarah Hughes, as if to say, you're not one of us. You never were. And then to the asylum, Cralingwell. In a photo from the asylum, Stonel Walker says, Fanny looks both terrified and belligerent. She prefers instead to think of Fanny as the woman in another photo, taken at Rossetti's home in 1863. Fanny is in her 30s, her hair thick and wavy, and she leans against a mirror so that she appears to be supported by her reflection, confident and peaceful. She will always be on her own, the photo seems to say, but she will never be alone. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial. New episodes drop the first Monday of every month. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening. <laughs>